Welcome to the Digital Leaders Podcast, Season 3. Today's guest is Rachel Neiman. Rachel is on the Digital Leaders Advisory Board and was our chair for three years. She's an influential technology leader with a focus on digital transformation, health tech, and digital inclusion, and is amongst other things, currently strategy director for Tech for Good and Impact investment platform, Digital Agenda. Hello, Rachel. Great to have you on the Digital Leaders Podcast. Hi, Robin. Great to be here. Many thanks for having me. So before we find out more about you, can you tell me about Digital Agenda, the organization your strategy director for? Yes, absolutely. So Digital Agenda focuses on tech for good, on social impact investing, on profit with purpose, and is very much a cross-sector organization that uh, brings together the very best for uh, the purpose of improving the way we do things using technology. So we have three, two main events a year. We have the Power and Responsibility Summit, which is held every October. This year it was held in the British Library. And we bring together a group of speakers from all sectors to discuss how they are promoting those particular issues. So tech for good, encouraging social impact through innovative use of technology. And interestingly, shifting the CSR model to a much more intrinsic business strategy based on profit with purpose. Second annual event we have are the Impact Awards, which are held every March. And these celebrate the very best in tech for good, across the sectors and across different industry uh, verticals. We've had some excellent uh, winners in the past. We've had organizations like NHS 111, like Borrow My Doggy, Olio, uh, like Bethlehem Green Ventures, all sorts of organizations that have done most fantastic work to push this agenda. And I think what's different about Digital Agenda is the fact that it does focus on a cross-sector agenda. It's not only for the not-for-profit sector. It's not only for the public sector because we believe very strongly that no one sector can do this alone and that the best and richest forms of collaborations come when you bring together um, a diverse and uh, wide-ranging group of people. So I'm obviously I'm seeing quite a lot in the press about profit with purpose and uh, data ethics and these sorts of issues. So is the platform growing? Uh, are more and more people interested in the topics that it's talking about? Yes, definitely. And we've absolutely seen that. I mean, it's grown just in the past year by about 6,000, 7,000 people, which is uh, extraordinary in such a short period of time. I think you're absolutely right to bring out uh, data ethics and responsible technology. These are things that are now so important following the whole Facebook Cambridge Analytica uh, issues of just over a year ago. And uh, I think there really is a movement now to try and, if not put that genie back in the bottle, at least try and find ways of regulating, of uh, confronting perhaps uh, what this really means and looking at it in a collaborative way and seeing how organizations can start to take responsibility for the way that they innovate with technology and the way they implement and design 
new technology is becoming more and more important. And this was very much part of the uh, Power and Responsibility Summit content uh, from October. And there's much more information on the Digital Agenda website. Uh, and I would really recommend people uh, have a look at what we've been talking about because it is so very timely and so extremely uh, appropriate and, and uh, necessary for today. Well, we'll definitely make sure we put a link to Digital Agenda on this podcast uh, and also on the conference you talked about so that people can go and have a look at that. So great. now, uh, great. So that's what you're, that's sort of what you're working on at the moment. Now, I know you've had leadership roles at the Department for Health, Go On UK, the think tank dot everyone, and most recently at the Corsham Institute. But can you tell me about your journey, your early inspirations and beliefs and, and what led you to where you are now? I think the thing to say first off is that I'm not a technologist by background. I studied languages at university and I started my career in communications. So I haven't come to digital uh, and the tech world from a scientific or te technological point of view. I think that having studied languages was actually quite an important part of this journey because languages, after all, are a form of code. And decoding and encoding in languages, whether we're thinking about uh, countries' languages or whether we're thinking about computer languages are very uh, are very allied. So I suppose almost without knowing it, I was very interested in how you present things and experience things in different in different ways. I think the other key thing about my background is that I I never planned my career. If I had been told when I was leaving university, what I would be doing now, I would have been completely surprised, not least because part of what I'm doing now probably never existed uh, when I was at university. I started being interested in how people communicate, in how people express themselves in language. And this led to an early career in publications management. And this was at a time before digital was really a thing. We had e-communications but we didn't really have digital as a separate discipline. So something that's been fascinating in the course of my career is seeing digital becoming a discipline in its own right and moving away from a time when digital was really, uh, at best, a, a website, a very flat website, um, a sort of web 1.0, and seeing that grow to become more of a community uh, a community tool through Web 2.0 uh, until it's become the incredibly sophisticated discipline that it is now. So I worked for the European Union for several years where I was responsible for the first multilingual website that was created uh, in the then 11 languages of the EU. And that was a fascinating project which taught me a lot about collaboration, about different cultures, about how to work in different ways with different people to get uh, the same results. And it was an award-winning website, which was very exciting. That really sparked my interest in the potential of digital for greater use than simply as a communications tool. I joined the Department of Health when I came back 
from the EU. And then there was no, as I said before, there was no digital discipline. There was just e-coms and there was IT. And the two were very separate. So I started in e-coms at the Department of Health. And when the Government Digital Service was created in 2011, I then became the first digital leader for the Department of Health, which now would be equivalent to a CDO uh, role in a, in a government department. And that was a fascinating role because we were really pioneering what it meant to be a digital first government, what it meant to put in place digital by default services. So I worked very closely with uh, the GDS team and with Mike Bracken on the very first government digital strategy and with my peers across Whitehall uh, on what it meant to be digital in government. I also worked right across the NHS and the arm's length bodies in health and social care around what it meant to be a digital first NHS. What does that mean in the health sector? And also what it means for a strategic department of state to be digital first? How does digital support policymaking? How does digital improve procurement? How does digital help with communications? How does digital help with new ways of working? So it was a very broad role and, as I said, very pioneering in terms of what it really meant. I became slightly concerned that the highest users of public services that were now going digital by default tended to be those that were least likely to have access to digital technologies or least likely to be digitally literate. And it so happened that Martha Lane Fox was looking for a chief executive for her charity, Go On UK, which at the time was looking to ensure that everybody had a very basic level of digital skills. So that was looking at digital as a leveler and digital literacy as something that was as important as uh, reading and writing and numeracy. And so I became uh, the chief executive of Go On UK and had a wonderful few years working with Martha on exactly this, on ensuring that everybody had a level of digital skills that would allow them to be successful in a world that was becoming more and more digitally oriented. Unfortunately, we still have a situation in the UK where one in five adults lack the five essential skills that are now considered the benchmark for digital literacy. So we created a framework when I was at Go on UK of these five digital skills, which have been updated uh, by DCMS and by Lloyds Bank. And Lloyds Bank now continue to measure this on an annual basis. And it's very interesting to see that there has been very little movement in that figure of 20% of UK adults lacking all these digital skills. So there are some serious issues with uh, the ability to go fully digital by default or digital first in, any, in, in, in the UK, uh, despite all the promises uh, that we see from government departments and commitments to improving connectivity and coverage. And there are many different reasons for that. But some of the core reasons are that we don't have 100% connectivity across the UK. So some people literally cannot access a digital connection if they want to. Some people still don't have the skills or the confidence to be able to use that digital connectivity, even if they do have access to it. And many people can't afford 
the uh, cost of a digital device or a subscription to a digital device. If you're feeding your family from a food bank, you're not going to be spending money on a subscription to a broadband um, account. And there's also an issue of people still not feeling they need to be connected to the internet. So there's an issue of motivation of how do you ensure that people understand that actually digital world and the internet can be extremely helpful to them, both in terms of their financial life, uh, but also in terms of their health, their social life, uh, and many other areas. And I think one thing that has made this more difficult is the increasingly negative stories that we hear in the media about some of the unintended consequences of the digital world. And of course, technology and digital can be used as much for, uh, as much in a negative way as in a positive way, because it's not really the technology per se that can be good or can be bad. It's the way that people use it, manipulate it, design it, implement it. So where there is a human behind the technology, there will always be some question as to whether it is completely, can be completely trusted. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be doing as much as we can digitally, because I am a total believer in the power of digital and the importance of it. But what we are seeing is an increasing need for people to become more aware and more understanding of how digital actually works, how the technology works, what is behind some of these algorithms that feed information to you that may or may not be totally uh, objective or accurate. And indeed, it will never be objective because no algorithm can be objective because they are all trained on data sets that will have been uh, collected or selected either with, with some level of bias, whether that's conscious or unconscious. There are far more sophisticated issues at play now in the way that digital is being used than perhaps five years ago when at Go on UK, we were looking to help everybody gain a level of digital skills, which were frankly quite mechanical. Now, I think the types of aptitudes and capabilities that everybody needs to have are a greater understanding of what the technology is actually doing, of greater critical judgment, greater ability to, to be resilient to, to constant change, to constant developments. One of the things that is particularly noticeable about the digital world we live in now is the speed of development, the speed with which uh, digital is, uh, is changing around us and how difficult it is to keep up. And it's difficult not only for ordinary people to keep up, but for businesses, for regulators, for decision makers, for politicians, uh, it's extremely difficult to be one step ahead. So how do you gain the resilience and the ability to be able to withstand the pressure of constantly having to think about uh, new ways of keeping up with the way the world is changing around you? I think that's particularly important with in, in education and also in the workplace, because now having the skills to go online is not something that you learn once and then don't ever have to review. So 
we need to look at a much more of a lifelong learning way of thinking about how we educate and train uh, people all the way through the life cycle, whether that's school children, whether that's people in the workforce, whether that's people in retirement, um, in order for them to make the most of the digital world around them. So I'm a great believer in the power of digital and the importance of digital, but also very aware that it comes with it. It brings challenges with it. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I think um, it, it's that constant change. We'll return to sort of the theme of digital leadership later in our chat today, but uh, maybe we can pick up pick up on that. But it is tech changes, and I think the goals or what is an acceptable level of skill changes. So, um, you know, any I know our listener uh, on the podcast is particularly sophisticated, so understands that uh, the stubborn twenty percent excluded is not a reflection on. On Martha Lane Fox or anybody's efforts. It's more about redefining what is that acceptable level or what are the things that people need to know. And that is a, that is a moving goal. So I think, you know, the people who are online, have access, have basic digital skills, has, if you're measuring it in sort of 2010, 2011, is, is massively improved. But I think it's more, it is more this constant change, which is such a challenge do you think it's creating a, a widening of the gap between the haves and have-nots of the digital world? Uh, yes, I do. And I, the way I characterize it is I think it's deepening the gap, if not widening it. The numbers aren't necessarily increasing. They're staying very static. But the impact of, no longer having, of not having those digital skills or that digital awareness is becoming far more profound given that digital is now more ubiquitous than it ever was before. And I just go back to something you said about the stubborn 20%. I wasn't implying that uh, uh, 20% aren't online for any particular negative reason, but it is because quite often the circumstances, the hygiene factors that need to be in place, the connectivity, the skills, the affordability, the motivation, uh, the confidence just aren't available to them. But you're absolutely right that that benchmark of what equals a digital skill or what does it mean to be digitally literate has changed incredibly since 2011 and, as you say, will continue to change. So uh, what are you working on right now? So I am still fascinated by these issues, the the impact of the speed of tech change on society and what people need to do to live with that constant change. So I'm looking at this very much, I guess, from the social impact point of view. The other thing that I really am committed to is true diversity and inclusion. And I want to talk about that, not just in the perhaps more obvious ways of gender and ethnicity and age and sexuality, but also more profoundly in terms of the way people think, the different experiences that people bring to the table, the different cultural references they have. I think that uh, if we are going to truly reflect the world that we are now living in, to have anything but a subset of that world uh, creating the technology that is there to serve us would not be uh, would not be doing justice to our society. So, I think that issues of 
diversity and inclusion have also moved on and are less the tick box attributes, if you like, that uh, we sometimes see on forms that we have to fill in, for example, but are perhaps even more subtle than that now. Uh, Those aspects are hugely important, of course, and will remain hugely important, but there are other ways of bringing diversity of experience, of bringing richness to the table in order to create products and services that are going to be more useful, more helpful, and more suited to the people uh, that they are being created for. So, those are two areas that I'm working on at the moment. And the concept of bias in algorithms is something that uh, connects both of those. So, the impact on people of technology and the speed with which technology is changing and the diversity and inclusion point, bias in algorithms, whether that's unconscious or conscious, uh, is definitely a big uh, contributor uh, to both of those things. Uh, And it's another of these unintended consequences of the digital age. So when I'm speaking at conferences, when I'm writing articles and so on, I talk a lot about those sorts of issues. I am working, as you know, as strategy director for Digital Agenda, and that is uh, a really important part of the work I do. I'm also a mentor and coach, and I'm a mentor for the organization Public, which runs the GovStart program, which is there to help uh, startups to work with government to solve problems, uh, social problems, and to improve how the public sector works. And I mentor in particularly health startups. So having had experience of 10 years at the Department of Health, health tech is an area that I also am extremely interested in and have a lot of experience in. So health tech is very much part of the work that I do. And I advise on areas including, again, inclusion for both patients and staff, the structure of the NHS and how organizations can work with it, the appropriateness of new tech for health. So again, there are limitations with some new technology and sometimes a technological solution is not the best option in health. I'm also a non-executive board member on various boards. I'm on the digitalhealth.london board, which uh, is working to make London the best place for digital health uh, in the world and works with the academic health science networks across London and with the mayor's office and NHS England. I'm on the board of the campaign for social science, which is part of the Academy of Social Science. And that's fascinating because that brings in the issues of education and of the different disciplines that actually have a very great overlap with work in digital. So the social science include things like the behavioral sciences, uh, like economics, the things that don't fit neatly into either the humanities or the natural sciences. And a lot of those issues are very pertinent to the digital agenda. So I was asked to join that board in order to bring some digital understanding to that network and to the uh, slightly more academic way of looking at it. You're obviously incredibly busy at the moment. Uh, One of the things you mentioned was public, and I should just remind our listener that I think episode one of this season three was with Daniel Korski, who founded uh, Public. So if you're interested in in what Rachel said about Public, then do um, have a listen to 
episode one from season three, where you'll find out more about that. So now this is the Digital Leaders Podcast. And uh, I said right at the start when I was introducing you that you were chair of Digital Leaders for three years. So uh, it's a bit of a planted question, really, to ask you how important do you think it is for leaders to understand the digital world? I think it's very important for leaders to understand the digital world, Robin, and not just because I was chair of digital leaders for three years, but because digital really is ubiquitous. And I think the thing for me is that this is about all leaders, uh, whether it's leaders in business, whether it's leaders in academia, whether it's leaders in government, whether it's leaders in the private sector, whether it's leaders in the not-for-profit sector. This isn't about being a specifically digital leader. All leaders now need to understand the importance of digital. So digital needs to become a core part of a leadership strategy, of a business strategy. It can no longer just be delegated to the IT team or the digital team. It has to be owned at board level by the CEO, by the executive team. Because if not, no organization is going to have the strategy that will get it where it needs to be. And what I mean by that is that Being a leader in a digital world or a leader in a digital age is less about having a deep knowledge of the technology and much more about understanding the impact on people, the impact on the area that you're working in, the impact on process, and how digital can actually increase your productivity and help you reach your objectives better. So it is simply in one way of looking at it would be to say it is simply a way of doing things better. And every leader, therefore, needs to know how to do that. And I guess sitting in London, which is quite a, always feels quite a digital place to me because we have wonderful kind of apps that help us get around and the city and, you know, tells us lots of useful things that make our days run better. Do you think once you get out of London, out of that sort of bubble that, um, do you think leaders suffer from lack of networks or opportunities to meet people who do get digital? I mean, how do they find their way into this journey if they're, you know, they're in a, they're in a much smaller sort of business community? There's a much greater understanding now of the importance of digital than there was, and more and more networks are growing. And I would actually point to the Digital Leaders Network, particularly, which is a national network. It's not just in London. And the regional program that Digital Leaders runs uh, shows how widely this topic is resonating. There are particular areas like uh, around Manchester, for example, Newcastle, uh, where there is an awful lot of innovative digital activity going on. But I think that you don't know what you don't know. And many people will still need to actively seek out advice on how to become more digital. But I think the positive element is that there is advice out there, there is support out there. And the first port of call, in my view, would always be the Digital Leaders website. Well, that seems like a great moment to to start to bring things to a close with a quote like that. So let's finish on our quick far round of three questions, which we asked all of our Uh, all of our our guests. So the first of those three is, what one book would you recommend to our listener and why? This isn't a new book. It's a book called 
Girdle, Escher and Bach. And it's by Douglas Hofstadter. And the reason I mention that is it is an absolutely fascinating look at links between formal systems. So it uses Girdle's mathematical theorems. It uses M.C. Escher's paradoxical artwork and Bach's music to discuss artificial intelligence and human intelligence. It's absolutely fascinating and a very different way of looking at how we've come to the digital world that we're in now. That sounds quite a heavy read, Rachel, is is it? It's actually incredibly, uh, well, I'd say it's incredibly easy to read. I think some of the concepts are complex, but it's written in an entertaining and engaging way. And I would totally recommend people give it a go. Brilliant. So our second question is, uh, the one person you would like most to have lunch with and why? That is incredibly difficult. Um, There are so many people I'd like to have lunch with uh, for all kinds of different reasons. But if I really, really have to choose one, it's a bit like Desert Island Discs. If I really have to choose one, I think I would like to have lunch with Hedy Lamar. And I'd like to have lunch with Hedy Lamar, not only because she was an amazing screen icon and an amazing style icon, and both of those things are pretty cool, but she was also an inventor. And her work on frequency hopping signals was a great precursor to our current technologies around Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. And I think that's very incongruous. It's not something that one would necessarily expect that an incredible film star would also have invented and done work that would lead to one of the or two of the technologies that we rely on most at the moment. So I think she must be a fascinating woman. She was also married six times, which is um, quite an achievement. Um, being on husband number one, I have to say, I think that's uh, quite quite something. So yes, yeah, so I'd be fascinated to have lunch with Hedy Lamar. Fantastic. Um, and last but not least, the one thing that our listener would be surprised to learn about you is. <laughs> That has also been very difficult. But one thing that people may not know about me is that I am fascinated in 19th century domestic history and dolls' houses. I inherited a dolls' house from my great, from my grandmother that had been passed down through her family that dates from the 1880s. And When I was 12, I inherited it. And from the age of 12, I've been collecting the most exquisite uh, and realistic um, miniatures to go inside that doll's house. I've done a huge amount of research into exactly what an 1880 interior would look like. I've bought uh, the most extraordinary things like a pair of silver scissors that actually cut um, I've created, I've made my own um, parquet flooring uh, for the for, for the doll's house. Um, and it's something that I find absolutely, uh, I can spend hours just uh, working on it and focusing on it and imagining the people who live in it and thinking about the kind of world that they would be inhabiting. And uh, I find it very therapeutic. Well, that, that's the beauty of this podcast is uh, that, that some, of our, some of our guests have fascinating 
hobbies outside of their busy lives that um, I'm sure a listener uh, would never be able to guess or imagine. So that one sounds absolutely fascinating. And I love the idea of miniature silver scissors that, are, that function. So it's one thing to have miniature things in, in the doll's house, but quite another if they work. Like they work and other 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 things other than the silver scissors that uh, that are kind of miniature but operate as if they weren't. Absolutely, uh, there, there are. There's well, I mean, for one thing, it it has it has lighting, gas lighting, obviously, as it would have been in those days, um, and candle lights. Although they aren't actually candles, well, there are candles. Uh, there are candles which can burn, but obviously they would burn very quickly. So I've never burnt them. Um, there are. There's a bottle of wine which has genuine wine inside it. There are pictures on the wall that are genuine pictures. There are children's toys that uh, that work. There are there are toys that um, there are jigsaw puzzles that actually work. There are uh, there's a little magnifying glass that actually works. Brilliant! Brilliant! It sounds amazing. It does sound amazing. <laughs> You'll have to send us uh, send us a couple of photographs of. Uh, I will. I will. So that we can uh, we can enjoy seeing that. But that's uh, I really like that. So now, look, uh, we sadly, uh, Rachel, we are at the end of our time together. So it just uh, remains for me to say thank you so much for being on the Digital Leaders Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. That is it for this episode of the Digital Leaders Podcast. Now, of course, we would love to know your thoughts. Tag us at, at DigiLeaders and let us know. And if you want to find out more about today's guest, head on over to our website, digileaders.com forward slash podcast, and we have all that information there. That is it for this week. I'm your host, Robin Knowles. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back soon with another episode of the Digital Leaders Podcast.